The funny thing about the real world is that the only thing that makes it inhabitable is our imagination. This is my conversation with Doug Cox. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Redmond. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. Who is my guest, you wonder? Who is in the studio today with me? Well, it is writer-director Doug Cox. Now, Doug Cox has directed, I don't know how many commercial, let's just say tons of commercial projects, commercials, branded content, short films, award-winning shorts. I have had the pleasure of doing his publicity, what I call creative publicity. I'm doing publicity for creative people, which means they create the genius work and I make sure everybody knows how genius it is. And that's how our relationship has worked for whatever, 20 years, I don't know. Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. I always like talking to you. We always, it seems like we never get this chance outside the scope of we need to do something and, and put out a little press thing. So this is good. This is fun. Right. Right. And that, and that is, that is what happens. You know, you, 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 you talk when, when there's work and especially over the last couple of years, people don't like just hang out or get together or travel as much. You know, I got to right. come see you in San Francisco at some point. And, um, you know, but, but let's actually play on that on that point and tell me a little bit, like, let's pretend that we don't know each other. Cause there, cause I know you so well in the context of your work, but I don't yeah. know a lot about your childhood. You know what? I know a little bit about what inspired you to go into film, but I think it's a good story. So I, I think if you, if you kind of let's, uh, let's really, uh, consider the audience and Doug Cox, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, who the fuck you are. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so I, 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 I didn't have the most conventional upbringing when it comes to I, I maybe not what's expected. I, I grew up in a very religious Christian Pentecostal household. Now, a lot of people have a lot of questions when they hear the word Pentecostal because they don't know what that means necessarily. But I would say it's it's kind of like if you were to take a tent revival. Um, Robert Duvall did a movie some time ago called The Apostle. That's my oh, grandfather, yeah. essentially. He was a Pentecostal minister. That did, he was a Dust Bowl migrant from Oklahoma. So all my family's from that side of, uh, yeah, <laughs> of time. So he basically would start church after church after church after church. He'd go into these sort of small towns and convert, you know, laundromats into churches if he could. And so... You know, it was very strict household, so in, in a way, I guess it makes sense that I would have a knee-jerk reaction and suddenly be, you know, a lunatic as far as it comes to writing comedy and, and doing more comedic work in my life. If I can't laugh at it, I think I'm only left with tears. So that's <laughs> I always call important. you Jesus. I always call you Jesus. You always call me Sonny. Right, right. So you weren't allowed to have a TV? Did you have a, a, a TV no, or no? So. That's a good question. No, we had a we had a 13 inch black and white TV, which I didn't realize it. And this is only 
this is mid 80s, you know, 86 through 88, where TVs weren't black and white, tiny TVs. They had actual normal size TVs that were still tube TVs in color, but we had a 13 inch black and white with a handle on it that my dad kept in the closet. And on Sunday nights after church, the second service of church, because there was always two on the Sunday. And after we went to church on Sunday, we brought out the 13 inch TV to watch. There was two shows on, on the local Christian network called Dennis the Menace and the Donna Reed Show. Now, that was the only exposure I had to TV <laughs> until I was around 10 or 11 years old when I started to, I think there was a natural reaction to the fact that our children aren't getting much exposure to life <laughs> without a television. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do with him? We got to do something. Put it, put him in front of that TV again. Right, right. You know? I think it's for their benefit. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, we were driving them crazy, I'm sure, my sister and I. Yeah, and you have, is it just the two of you siblings? Yeah, yeah, my sister, you know, I think she got the brunt of it. She's about seven and a half years older than me. I can't imagine what it was like, you know, when I was six and she's, you know, 14 years old, uh, 14, 15 years old, and she's, you know, going through that part of her life yeah. and not having normal exposure to life and the things around us and whatnot. And I think it's always kind of like that, you know? I, my earliest memories and probably my more fond memories are making my mother laugh. And I mean, that was, that was my exposure to things were always, and I thought it was normal. Like I looked at black and white sort of forties, fifties movies as what was current, even though it was 30 years old, you know, did that kind of comedy. Like I grew up on Red Skelton, Jack Benny, you know, cause that was, that was what Christian households could watch and listen to safely, you know? And yeah, and those guys, man, they would go blue every now and then for sure. So, you get that kind it of was exposure, a, you get an education. It, yeah, it was a little more on the, just on the naughty, the, the censor friendly, but, you know, but a little, a little racy or a little yeah. vaudevillian, you yeah. know, we, well, we have, clever about it then. yeah, yeah. You had to be surreptitious. We're, Absolutely. we have a lot in common in that in my home, you know, we were Sabbath observant, so we weren't allowed to watch TV. We had TVs, but we weren't allowed to watch them on the Sabbath, but my mom, who had been raised very modern, cultural Jewish. She needed the TV on the way. She was like, just have a TV on somewhere right, and let us right. go at some point and watch somewhere. So we had a TV in the basement, very much looking like the TV you described with the antenna and the handle mm -hmm. and the thing. And we'd all gather around just around 6 p.m. on Saturday when everybody was going crazy from doing nothing for 24 hours. And we would watch The Price is Right because that, that's what was on at that time. And my whole association with The Price is Right is that it was something you watch on, on Shabbos when, you know, you're not allowed to do anything else. Yeah. So, but, but I think that a lot of my sense of comedy also came from the older stuff like Abbott and Costello, the, the stuff that was on on Sundays. Abbott and Costello joined the French Foreign Legion, Three Stooges. That was, that's what I, that's what I, you know, grew up watching. And then Monty Python. Yeah, I think, and it's interesting because you learn a lot about comedic pacing. And, and even in the reference to Three Stooges, you know that every single one of them played a role in the sort of, if you're called a Greek chorus, you know, it's, it's, they all had their observational way of doing things. And it was almost like the three stages of personality traits that here's one way to tell a joke. Here's the second way to tell the joke. And here's the third way to tell the joke. 
And when those three can come in chorus, it's almost like music, you know, it's harmonics. And that's, and that's how well that brand of comedy worked. I always yeah. loved watching those guys do that because it's, it's such a subtle art and you watch it now and you think, oh, they're, they're just being stupid. They're doing this. It's all physical comedy. It's like, no, they're dancing. It, it, yeah. In a way, a lot of that is special choreography. And as stupid as it was, celebrate stupid. I say that a lot, especially when if, if I'm on set and then we're, we're sort of finding the meter of where we damage a brand versus whether we celebrate it. And I think that's, that's where you start. You start up here at 13 and you kind of dial it back until you find your tone. All those inspirations are important. I, I, I think yeah. I took a lot away from Red Skelton films because he had a way of, I mean, he had his personas, right? He had like the Clem Cadiddlehopper yeah. Remember that? He played the, uh, I think it was the Flim Flam Man, or was that the homeless guy? No, that's Freddy the Freeloader. Was, was that <laughs> I remember Clint it. Kendall I remember. Hopper was, every single time he announced his name, somebody in the room would say, well, how do you spell that? And you go, well, the hopper at the top and the cadiddle in the middle. And it was <laughs> dumb, but it, it had a pace to it that was kind of just like, you create you create the joke before the name, and then that's how he did yeah. that. You know, it was interesting. They replicate that on... Um on Marvelous uh, Mrs. Maisel, their, their writing style is very, mm -hmm. uh, very musical. Pretty it's, amazing. It's cadence. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about, all about the cadence, you know, the styles of, of comedy. Tell, tell, tell me a little bit about when you're working with brands, because by the way, so I'm, I'm going to start another podcast called Yes Brand, which I had, which I had that idea a long time ago, but it comes from the yes and improv concept. And I'm going to take people, have people come on with their brand and I'm going to add to their, you know, story and they're going to add to my story and we're going to yeah. play like a right. telephone game of, of brand storytelling. So it's, it's great that you're on now because this is a little preview. What tell the audience a little bit about, because this audience is, is very diverse. They're not from one industry or another. They're just all trying to survive in this crazy world. That's it. That's all they want to do. Um, so yeah, like all tell, are, right? like all of us are. So we all have that. Income. So tell the audience what it's like to work with a brand, how that works, how that process works when they, when you're, you're getting on board to direct or to edit uh, or write even a, a project. The briar patch I was raised in, and, and I sort of came about in this world, is is the advertising industry. You know, I, I cut my teeth in, in an agency called Publicis and Hal Reine, and if you're not familiar with the ad world, they were like the sort of the birth of West Coast advertising. Hal Reine sort of started this um, this voice for brand work that. Um, very nostalgic and celebrated and legendary voice for advertising. So there was there was a lot of pressure when I first got into advertising to meet that expectation in the sense that this is where you were born and now you have to understand that if you're talking about a brand, you treat it with respect. And then I was asked to basically <laughs> I, I basically became a, a comedy person, but I, more importantly than that, I became sort of a, a, a Swiss army knife for agencies that essentially needed somebody that could come in and, and fill certain digital voids. You know, when digital content first came out, nobody knew what to do with it. 
it, they, nobody knew what it was, you know. I started as a producer, so I was doing TV, radio, basically that was it. You know, it's like, well, here's a TV script, here's a radio script. And all the pitch work looked like that. You know, web wasn't a thing. It wasn't a, yeah. you know, we have to figure out what to do with banners. You know, there was no media space to flex that muscle. And then essentially what happened was they took guys like me that were the filmmaker geeks who had already a skill set in filmmaking that were in the real library who were only building director reels for other directors and editing reels together all day long when they, for the writers that were writing commercials. And they'd, they'd run in and be like, hey, we don't know what to do with this footage, but client's asking that we create a thing for this website called YouTube, and <laughs> we need it like yesterday. And so then I would sit there and I would, I would be frantic like, this is my moment, you know? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know. And so I'd, I'd cut together from three quarter inch tapes. This, it was a very linear way of working and I'd pull in footage and you know, we'd make things out of it. And then I started shooting more and shooting more and shooting more and I'm like, okay, well now I'm, now I'm exercising this muscle that I love, which is being on set. And I started working with local production crew. I made a lot of friends with production crew and then suddenly, well now I'm a filmmaker, now, now I'm a director and now I'm, oh wait, now I'm no longer in the agency, now I'm doing this. And that's kind of the birth of how I started to address brand work because now all my clients in my company is all direct clients for the most part. I have some agency clients, but you know, what happened is um, with digital content became this greater need for content because it wasn't just about TV and radio and it became about anything on the internet. In fact, it's mostly all internet now. And so these guys like me, or anybody, you know, men, women of all creeds that were in the director real rooms slaving away in the agency world just to make the copywriters and the art directors and the producers happy suddenly became these sort of more heroic figures to where they could actually be like, oh, no, 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 we're not in the 30-second world now, so now I made this 90-second thing for Altoids. I just think it's funny, but check it out. And then the creative director would run in and be like, that's really funny. And then the creative director would go like, where does this live? I go, no, 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 they're already asking for this. So we'll put it on the YouTube and then we'll put a logo on it, put, run it through legal and then we're good. And so that was how yeah. digital be, just exploded. And it just kept going and going and going and going and going. So when I, when you're, if I'm answering the question, how do I deal with brand work is, I know these people and I know, these, I know what they're looking for in this sector that now has to live about like and uh, you know what i what i extract from that as well is you know when you grow up so to speak in an agency culture the work you're creating <clears throat> is what that culture creates so in other words you know burger king comes to them whoever it is comes to them it 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 is as much about that agency's culture as it is about the brand culture and they try to find a good marriage whereas when you're working direct to client mm -hmm. yes they want what you do but you kind of want to do what they do. You want to help them find their voice. You want to help them. That's why I think the direct-to-client thing and the, the yeah. format expansions and the fact that we can do, you know, we can do things that are a minute, things that are, are an hour, things that are five seconds, and we can do banners, we can do pre-roll. We can, you know, there's so many different ways to skin the yeah. cat. 
I, I've I've heard it called many things, but I think perhaps my favorite my favorite is branded entertainment. And yeah. I think the best example was, and I remember laughing at it early on, and then realizing you better get on board with this idea of branded entertainment because it's kind of what is about to happen. I believe it was the the sisterhood of traveling pants, if I may invoke that. <laughs> uh, not one I thought I'd ever be referencing today. Uh, th this that was one hundred percent a like Levi's branded film about a pair of pants. And it was like, that was the, for me, that was the perfect example of like, well, now we're just kind of going, coming full circle, right? Because if you go to like, you know, the Crest presents the Red Skelton show, or it was always cool, yeah. you know? Yeah. That was brand new entertainment, you know? It was like the yeah. brand came first, it's like who paid for what? And so that's, that's how these things turn into things, you know? The brand, the brand called if we're talking about branded entertainment and the brand comes first, I, I, a good example of this is I shot a film that I called the last Patriot. This is right around, this is post nine 11 and it was just starting to be okay to start to find humor in moments that could be relatable to the events of nine 11, because as a surreal thing that we all went through, I was like, when is it going to be okay for us to laugh again or have joy, you know? And I remember the Thomas Ridge, uh, Tom Ridge of the Homeland Security, which was oh. this new founded sector of the government, had just released the guidelines for red alert, orange alert. Remember that? Yeah. The elevated yeah, alert yeah. system, which was a color-coded system that at any given time, if you saw a yellow, we're at elevated, you know? And it was... I remember laughing just thinking how ridiculous it was because it didn't do anything. I mean, there was times that we were talking about putting duct tape under our doors to keep chemicals out from underneath our door. And it was making me laugh. And I was like, well, I'm about to make this DC trip. I, I had done a campaign for, uh, it was, it, I, I, I forget what it was even for, but I was traveling to DC. I'm like, I'm going to be in DC. I'm going to bring my camera kit and my producer at the time, a very talented woman, Kathleen Kissett. She, she came with me. And I was like, she'll be my camera person, and I'm just going to order up all these T-shirts that said low. It was a green T-shirt that said low. It was a yellow T-shirt that said elevated, and a red T-shirt that said high. You know, and I'm going to do a film about a guy who's doing his part for uh, America and letting everybody know what alert it was by wearing the T. I mean, the joke was he's always wearing the elevated. <laughs> coffee stains on it he's, he's never actually wearing you know that was the whole full service joke it's a three minute documentary and i made it because we were pitching altoids and altoids at the time had this mint called alerts and so i was like respect your alerts and i'm like okay so i started writing a couple tags and i was like okay make follow your alerts or share your alerts i think that's what it was, it was share your alerts because they had this whole campaign movement about sharing is caring and all that and so we did something like share your alerts altoids and so it became, all right, now it's a branded thing. Yeah. And they pitched it, Altoids didn't buy it, but now I had a short film. And then I ended up just putting it on a new website that had just launched called Funny or Die. And I didn't think anything of it other than, ah, I hope it lives. I hope it doesn't die. And then it was, I was on a flight from Chicago. I had landed, and by the time I landed, my phone had about... 
35 different messages on it. People were waking out because they had put my short on the landing page because I, it was something that was operated by Adam McKay and Chris Henchy, who was also a producer with Gary Sanchez Productions. And by the time I had landed, I had an, an email in my inbox from Chris Henchy. And I'm, I'm trying to process it all because I just landed. And it said, it said, um, Adam and Will really loved your short. What else do you have? Wow. And that was a moment that I remember kind of going, oh, crap, I don't have anything. <laughs> it was also one of those moments where I realized I was very young and just naive because I didn't, I didn't think what I was doing had that kind of impact as quickly as it, as it did. Because it was that, and that was the nature of viral. And that was the first lesson I got in that. And I, I tell this to my kid all the time because he's always shooting things and wanting to put it on the internet. And I'm always like, you never know. You never know when something's going to blow up. And then I had another message that said, Will Ferrell likes your short and he's talking about it on the internet on the landing page. And it had the short, it had my film. And then next to it, it had a little blurb from Will Ferrell that said, I think my favorite part about this is when our hero, Brian, is talking to a squirrel, really thinks he's got things figured out and he doesn't. And I was kind of like, oh man, what a cool moment. And I, I remember feeling it was the first time I, I felt like, okay, maybe... Maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm doing something I should be doing and being proactive about the content I'm creating and not having to get a brief and then make something, you know? And I think yeah. that's something I've never, I've never really lost. And I can tell you right now, if Chris Henchy sent me another email asking me what else you got, I could fill about two hours <laughs> of pitches. <laughs> of things that I could probably, and that's, that's one of the things they tell you eventually. And unfortunately I learned the hard way is that you always have to have that second backup. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't expect that kind of validation at that point. Cause now, now it's the opposite. Now that the, the, um, stakes are so high that in order for something to be considered some kind of phenomenon, it needs hundreds of millions of, of views. Things get hundreds of millions of views every day. It's just an entirely different world. So, so what happened? What happened after that? After that experience, I think people in the agency world I, started to listen. I guess a little bit more. Not that they weren't ever listening. I, I think. I think it was Swiss Army Knife Doug, the knucklehead kid in the director real room, that was just sort of piecing things together and goofing around. I started to get put on a lot more pitch work, and so writing and such. So I got to write more. I right. got to, you know, which, which is its own experience. And, and, you know, in the agency world, they, the timesheet has to market you towards what brand you're working on. And I was working on all of them. And so there was all these conversations about, well, how do we, how do we pay Doug? How do we take care of what he's doing? What's his title? What does he even do? And I went through, I think, probably a half a dozen different job titles because they didn't know where to place me. Because, again, there's no digital directors. There's no content directors. There's no... I think at one point, and this is the, the whole industry experimented with the term predator, which is a terrible... terrible oh, yeah, term. yeah. Producer, it's editor. Producer, editor, and they call them predators. And they're like, oh, yeah. It's not fierce. <laughs> no, it and, and, and someone in the ad business came up with that. That's the sad part. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I get, I get the effort. I get why an A plus for trying to put 
people like us in a, in a place to where it's like, okay, well, you're just a content creator. Like, so content creator is a dumb title. It's like, actually, it's not. It's actually a great title. So. Well, if you were an editor and a director, then they called you an erector. So you had <laughs> you had that going on. I've never heard that. That's amazing. No, I, I I just thought of that, but I think but I think that would have been fun, you know. Director, director. Yeah, but then but then they would say if you were a right if they were looking for a writer director, they could say we're looking for a rector, and they would think you're talking about an editor director when they're really saying writer director. Right. So right. there are some mistakes they didn't make. Right. But I think but branded content still throws me because isn't every piece of branded content branded content so isn't the campaign you did you know for method man or a variety isn't that aren't they all uh you know branded content yeah i think that's i think that's why they're straying away from the term branded entertainment because i think at the end of the day you're discounting what you're doing it's like well we all want to be entertained by ads i think that's the goal you know I, I, I was thinking about this. I had this memory in my head of what 30 seconds used to mean, you know, as a commercial where you would watch. What, what does it mean to people in the ad industry versus what it means to people at home are two completely separate things. Mm. And I remember, I think it was like my first, it was, I was within the first week of, of working at the agency and somebody was giving me a tour of the shop and, you know, we came across what was the focus group room. It was the two-way glass to where you could look into or, or you could see them, they couldn't see you. And it's where all the cameras were. And it was like, yeah, you'll learn this room. You know, this is where we, we, we pay people to watch our ads and we ask them a bunch of questions and we get a lot of data and usage out of that. And I remember being really curious about it because I was like, yeah, you pay people to watch a 30 second commercial? And you know, I knew nothing about advertising. I was a geek filmmaker kid and I was just trying to get on the ground floor or something to where I could get paid to do what I like to do. And they were kind of like, well, yeah, that's what we do here, you know? And I said, well, how long does it, they watch the commercial? And it was like, well, you know, they come in for anywhere from two to three hours, you know, we give them a couple hundred bucks and we talk to them about the, the spot that they just watched. And I'm, and I remember I tilt, tilting my head. I don't know how I ever got a, a job. <laughs> I, I, I should have filtered a little bit more, but I was like, so you put a bunch of people in a room that aren't professional, like advertisers that are just consumers in a room and you show them a 30 second ad, make them focus on it for three hours. I go, yeah. And I just kind of went, huh. And I remember the reaction of the two producers that were with me. And it was kind of like, to me, it was that moment that I never lost. I've never felt like that was so stupid. And I still feel feel this way because I had work killed that I had written by focus groups. My friends have had work killed by focus yeah. groups. And the most ridiculous idea that you can ask a dozen people in a room to stare at a 30 second commercial, be entertained by it enough to fill three hours of questions without them finding something wrong with it. It's like the great interrogation, right? It's like when they have false testimonies because someone, yeah. like they're in a room for three hours, they're gonna find something wrong with it versus the person in passing who laughs because he hears something funny and turns his head and there's the call to action and you see a logo and you go, that's a great ad. 
I don't care if they need whatever they're selling. They're going to go talk to their friend about that. Dude, I saw this commercial. It was, it was really funny. It was the best. That's why comedy works so well for advertising. Yeah. It's the most impactful in the least amount of time. But branded entertainment, now you're kind of like, well, then our first goal was always to entertain. And so for me, I think about those focus groups and I think, isn't the first goal to entertain them? But you're not going to get three yeah. hours of entertainment out of 30 seconds. Well, you, yes. That's why. It- well, yeah, I will qualify that by saying unless it's the commercial, the commercials that they show on Hulu, because if you have the uh, basic Hulu where they right. put ads in, you're going to end up seeing the same progressive commercials a hundred times a week, basically. So they have no shame about playing those commercials, and those commercials by and large, stand up to 300 hours of, of scrutiny. And so, you know, you're, you're really putting that focus group thing to the test. You're stretching the boundaries of whatever. How many times do I have to see that guy take that meatball out of that refrigerator or whatever the hell it is? It's right. It, but, but I've, but, but you sit there and you watch it maybe with the sound off because the sound's always louder during commercials on Hulu. I don't mean to bust Hulu's balls, but I'm just, just saying, but, but, but we're pushed to the test of what we can, how much we can watch comedy because they're not doing that with a with a you know a serious commercial they're doing it with comedy commercials you know right right so what about what it's, about it's the uh, oh go ahead go ahead go ahead it's a, no go go for it no go ahead. no 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 I'm moving I have the next topic lined up in my head but you can go ahead with whatever you have. No, I was just I was just saying it's funny that I'm not so bothered by the repetition of the same spot when I'm watching streaming content and I'm wondering if it's because of the data analytics which they do so many things now where they can actually track the public interest in this stuff and it's like I laugh at those progressive spots all the time. I think they're it's hilarious content. And I'm like I'm just watching the same joke over and over and over again and I'm not tired of it yet and maybe it's because of schleps like me are basically just okay with it that and i'm wondering if that's why they just sort of run the same media by that's a great campaign you just came up with a great campaign which is that yeah. this is doug this is doug doug's doug's the reason that all these things are playing over and over again um which actually now segues into my next topic which is doug cox the actor Tell me, tell me now. I should. I'll give him a little background. Uh, you starred in one of your one of your short films called Pie, which was about a guy who just has a chronic problem of getting hit in the face with pie. Basically, that's is that pretty much it. Yeah, it's a it's real cerebral, uh, highbrow <laughs> comedy. Yeah, um, you know, only the smartest stuff is what I, I like to work on. No, it's you know what. If, if I had a style for the, 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 my latest streak of shorts, I would probably say they were more of the SNL sort of variety of digital short, which the Lonely Island guys, that's their stake in the ground. And I think I can't, I can't say more, I can't speak more highly of a group of individuals as far as talent and being able to sort of monopolize that, that whole corner of the market. I think, you know, I like, I like, uh, I like, short tragedies that are simple in nature and pie actually started from an ad campaign i was doing a commercial for uh i was writing a a spot for denny's 
and Denny's big thing, their only competitor really is IHOP. So you got Denny's and IHOP, and IHOP's big thing is just, you know, pancakes covered in sugar with whipped cream and, and maple syrup. And so Denny's big thing was about savory. You know, you want to keep everything being savory, like bacon, and you know. So sweet versus savory. My idea was, you know, nobody, it was all about whipped cream and like, you know, nobody wants whipped cream in their face. Nobody wants this much sugar in their face. And so oh. it was basically this guy who tragically was just constantly getting pied in the face. You know, he'd be, but it was way more elaborate, you know, in the world where we have budgets to shoot anything we want. It was like he's skydiving and he's having the best time and it's just, you know, and it's pie in the face. It's pie in the face, pie in the face. And the repetition was making me giggle because I probably wrote a hundred different scenarios where you can get pie in the face and it, it defeats the laws of science, physics, and it's more twilight zone in nature that you would suddenly get this pie in the face. And I was like, well, I latched onto that and I was kind of like, well, one of these days I'm just going to make a short film of this. And the creative director laughed and he's like, I can never sell that. <laughs> I was like, yeah. okay. So it had to be... It had to be a non-branded comedy short, but it also Absolutely. it also was a precursor to to Gary to your latest short film, where repetition is again kind of a pushing the boundaries of repetition. You know, you yeah. have a guy. I don't want to give away too much, but the protagonist, uh, played by the uh, by the inestimable uh, Stu Barnes. The protagonist or antagonist is a very annoying dude who who pushes repetition to the boundaries of acceptability. You had a you had a line in the you had a line in the press release that we did for that film where you talked about seeing Stu on the news once at a weather during a storm. Yeah, St Stu was cast as Gary with no doubts at all because. <laughs> I, you know, Stu's, Stu's an editor here at the cabinet and he's a very talented dude and um, he understands comedy and he understands timing and he's very dry at any given time. If, if a moment happens to you, you make the most of it and you make it into something that you can entertain yourself at the very least at the end of the day. <laughs> I think that's kind of been church-like here at the cabinet and he had, uh, he was working out with a friend of his in the park. It was early in the morning and a tree had been downed from high winds and it was a very slow news day and the news truck appeared and a very young um, news uh, anchor decided to do a live taping and it was a live feed taping and Stu uh, recognized this and decided he would approach and offer his take on the felled tree and his take began with I was just in the park getting my pump on when all hell broke loose and he proceeded <laughs> to say getting his pump on every other sentence to a point where I it, the first few times you're like okay this is stupid and then by the sixth time you're in tears because that's the joke of repetition right you realize it's silly and then you give yourself permission to laugh which I yeah think was a code that unlocked often you see that in snl tropes that these are common tropes is repetition can be funny and i think that's yeah i think that's okay you really have to test your boundaries though because sometimes it doesn't work at all. well but the but the but the logic is that it's it's through trial and error it's going to work sometimes so right. pushing it pushing it pushing it and i always 
as a practitioner of comedy and I'm watching this stuff, I'm always like, okay, they're going to do it. They're going to do it one more time. They're going to do it again. Right. Uh, they're going to say it again. And then one just one more. There's one more in there. And it's all the more funny, even though I know it's coming. Right. You know? Right. Well, speaking of the way that, that time is set up, we have a certain format for our show and we have a certain sure. time time frame that we try to adhere to. One is to respect the time of the guest and the and the other is to respect the time of the listener and you put them all together and you come at whatever, thirty eight minutes. I don't know who does I don't know who does that. It's, you don't have to stick to thirty eight minutes, but 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 there's a penalty if you go into forty seven or forty eight minutes that, that becomes, you know right. fifty three minutes you get hate mail. Right. Sixty minutes, they 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 basically take you off the off the interweb, and that's that's it. You're out. Um, yeah. What kind of what's rubbing you? What's rubbing you? What's what's kind of making you feel like man? Yeah, that's that is just funny. That's just funny. You know, I often think about when the aliens come, when the aliens arrive, and you know. It's also fun to think about when we go and start to explore space that we're the aliens and what are our observations going to be of another civilization. And I like to think that when the aliens come here, they're already going to be smarter than us. When I think about just how passionate we are about stupid things and that tastes funny. And the, the thing that makes me the most appreciative of stupidity is to, is to try to laugh at some of the stupidity in our world and understand that the challenges that we face today, which I truly think we're in like this sort of, you know, I often, my wife is very tired of me talking about the pendulum, but the pendulum swings mighty right now. And you, with every sort of, you know, you've got a very left, left radical left and a very radical right that is uh, uh, one helps the other in swing and the other helps the other in swing. And, mm -hmm. You know, there's a there's a weird temperament where I try to I, I would love to be able to put out the fire and help in any way where it's like well, let's just all calm down for a second because some of the things that are happening is is so so loud you know and I think when I think of the aliens coming down and looking at some of the things that we're choosing to care about in certain that's going to taste funny and you could take from that what you will <laughs> yeah I don't want to start with fires. I'm simply saying, if we all don't learn to laugh and take a step back and look at things through a lens where we're allowed to look at ourselves like cartoons, you know, and learn that, you know, there's one thing that everybody sort of agrees with. And I think that's when we all love laughter, love is always the winning thing. I, you know, ask a person, I hate it when I laugh. I don't like laughing. You're never going to hear a person say that, and I think laughter wins, and so does love. And, and when the aliens come, and the aliens discover how much we forgot to laugh for a period of time and came up with a, a whole lot of silly things to argue about, um, that tastes funny to me. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.